Although fat loss sounds simple on paper, which is why many people will just tell you that all you need to do is eat less and exercise more. That's a statement that's truthful, but it isn't helpful for many, which is where I really think that it's you know, focusing on the nutritional aspect of fat loss is pivotal because let's face it, 99% of us do not have the time and energy to create a deficit purely from exercise and to out-exercise a poor diet. Welcome to the Wits and Weights podcast. I'm your host, Philip Pape, and this twice-a-week podcast is dedicated to helping you achieve physical self-mastery by getting stronger, optimizing your nutrition, and upgrading your body composition. We'll uncover science-backed strategies for movement, metabolism, muscle, and mindset with a skeptical eye on the fitness industry so you can look and feel your absolute best. Let's dive right in. Wits and Weights community, welcome to another episode of the Wits and Weights podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Brandon DeCruz for his second appearance on the show. Brandon is an online nutrition and physique coach, educator, internationally published fitness model, and national level MPC competitor who uses an evidence-based approach to help his clients achieve their goals sustainably. Back on episode 58, we talked about energy flux and the high energy flux lifestyle, which is a way of eating more, moving more, burning more fat, building more muscle. If you haven't listened to that, go check it out episode 58. It's full of practical strategies to improve your health and body composition. Today, we're going to talk about another topic that many people struggle with, how to make fat loss feel easier because we all want to get and stay lean. We all know that losing fat can be challenging, especially if you have a busy or high stress lifestyle. So we're going to discuss some strategies and scenarios that can help you overcome those and make dieting more manageable and sustainable. Brandon, thank you again for joining me on the show. I'm super excited to dive into this topic. Philip, thank you for having me back on the show, my man. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. You know, I always look forward to speaking with people, but especially like-minded individuals like yourself. And it's really cool to connect again and be a return guest on your show, especially as I know you've been working hard. Like we've been chatting off scenes, you know, in DMs and, and emails and things of that sort. I know you've been really working hard to continue to grow the show. And you've had a stack list of guests since I've been on last time. So you've had a lot of some of my mutual friends within this industry and people that I really respect, mentors like Alan Aragon and Eric Helms and guys like that. So uh, I feel like I'm in good company first and foremost, yeah. but it's also nice to see your growth because podcasting is something, if you look statistically, most people don't make it, like most podcasters don't make it between uh, beyond like the three to five episode mark because it's such a saturated industry. A lot of times it's hard to gain momentum, both in terms of your own ability to present information, especially when you do it on a one-on-one -on -one format. Also your ability to connect with people, get them on to podcasts, just like, you know, I'll, I'll be completely, uh, I'll admit it and be completely transparent that to schedule with me, it's really difficult because I have such a busy schedule. And so as a podcaster and a podcast host yourself, you have to be really flexible working around people's schedules. So a lot of people behind the scenes, like listeners, they don't realize, and I know this now because I was I was talking to you off air about this, but I've done you know close to 200 podcasts at this point. But at this stage, I'm at episode 70 of the Chasing Clarity podcast, which mm -hmm. is my own podcast. But you know the other 130, I've been a guest, so I never had to worry about the back end stuff uh, in terms of setting things up, scheduling, editing. Everything that goes beyond, you know, behind the scenes, these, this is a lot of work that people put in like yourself, which I respect. And, and I hope that the audience really appreciates that because we go above and beyond when we could be doing other things, but we really try to get back and make an impact on the community as a whole. Yeah, man, <clears throat> it is so true. And you do get better and better at this. Uh, the more reps you put in like anything else, I go back and listen to my first five episodes and I'm almost like embarrassed, you know, like I don't want anybody to hear them, but that people will come back and say, you know, it really doesn't matter because the content, you know, came out, uh, what you're saying was genuine and it, it taught me something that I didn't know before. And really that's what matters. So that's why we put in the reps and 
Uh, yeah, you. I think you were the first. Uh, I'll say like big name fo- person I had on the on the podcast, if you will. But I have no problem reaching out, and saying yes, or, or asking you guys, knowing the worst I can get is a no, and the best I can get is to connect with people that I also appreciate and follow. So anybody listening, uh, there's probably a lot of folks listening who are also super busy. They have these kinds of lifestyles. They run their businesses, and they're like, I I can't also, you know binge a million podcasts and learn everything that uh, that Brandon knows about nutrition and fitness. So they want to hear it straight, right? They just want to hear kind of, here's what you do. And so we're going to get into some of that today, Brandon, with uh, the topic. I'd like to make it personal at first, though, for you, because I think you can relate a lot to the listener and vice versa and your clients. So what is your personal experience with struggling with fat loss and then maybe even making it more difficult than it needed to be in the past? Man, uh, that is a great topic to start out with because a lot of times people, you know, if you go to my profile now, you look at some of my photos, whether it be from photo shoots or from contest preps, a lot of times people will say, oh, you must have always been lean or it must be easy for you. And when it comes to my personal experience with fat loss, I believe the reason that I've become so interested in this topic of fat loss and I have made so much content and so many podcasts and been on so many other individuals' podcasts like yourself about this is, is twofold. And first, it's because it's a goal that I initially struggled with to achieve early on especially when I first got into fitness modeling, because I started with fitness modeling in college prior to going into actual competitive bodybuilding. And I found myself trying every single popular approach at that time. But due to the limited amount of quality information that was around at that time, what I was doing was definitely suboptimal from all aspects, to be honest with you. So we're talking suboptimal from nutrition, from training, from fat loss and a muscle retention standpoint. And during my first few years of fitness modeling, I literally tried every single popular diet approach, like even fad diets, like things that I'm, I'm honestly, you know, embarrassed to admit to, but I also think that it's good to be aware of our failures, some of the things we've, you know, the past mistakes we have, and also be transparent about those things so that other people realize, hey, listen, you know, 15 years ago, I was exactly where you are. So, you know, I did everything, you know, I first started fitness modeling in 2010. So we're talking 13 years ago. And I did every fad diet you could think of. We're talking keto. We're talking cyclical keto. We're talking intermittent fasting. I did rapid fat loss diets via Lyle McDonald. And at the time, I don't even know if his rapid fat loss book was out. So I think I got it from the boards itself and from his, um, his body recomposition website. I did bro bodybuilding diets where literally all I ate, and this scars me to this day, all I ate for 12 weeks was tilapia and broccoli. That's literally the only things I ate. And I still cannot eat tilapia to this day. And then I also did your if it fits your macros where I tried to fit in all the fun foods that I loved into my diet, which was literally a disaster. So basically you name it, I tried it. And during those first few years, I noticed that I either struggled to achieve, achieve the lean look that I desired due to struggling with an inability to manage my hunger or I had a little bit of the opposite. I was able to get lean, but I'd quickly regain all the weight that I lost after as at that time, you know, if I really go back there and I think about it, we're in in such uh, a privileged state. And a lot of people don't realize that if they're just getting into fitness, but realize we're in the age of information. So there are so many um, evidence-based outlets for information, whether it be research reviews or podcasts like we do, where you can get really evidence-based and and experience-backed practices towards fat loss, towards muscle gain. There was none of this when I was getting into this. So there was no such thing as a post-diet reverse or recovery dieting approaches. And there was definitely no such thing as maintenance phase. So I found myself mm-hmm. during this time, you know, weight cycling, like a lot of other people who are probably listening to this can relate to. So I remember 
uh, I worked with a popular bodybuilding coach who was known for turning many guys pro for my first contest prep. And this was in 2014. And it was the first time that I had truly gotten shredded. And granted, those were the days where we do like the dirty bulk prior to a prep. So I needed to lose over 50 pounds. So I, I want people to realize like I've been overweight. I've had insulin resistance. I've had terrible blood work. Like I've been through the gambit of these things. And now I take a much different approach, but that came through the experiences and failures of my past. And so I remember the day after my show, the morning after, you know, I'm a young guy. It was my first first contest prep, I did really well. And I wanted to know how to improve going forward. So the day after my first show, I emailed my coach and I asked him how I should approach my nutrition going forward. And he literally told me to go right back to how I was eating prior to the 12 week prep that I did. And he he told me that the intention behind that was to take advantage of the quote unquote post-show rebound. And the reason I'm doing quote unquote is because now many of those, um, those fallacies and things that we used to think, you know, these myths that we used to be told by coaches and, and people of the sort during that time, I've done many podcasts on about how that's literally the opposite of how our physiology actually responds. Because honestly, if anything, you're primed for an adipose rebound, not a anabolic rebound in terms of muscle gain. You're more primed to regain fat after a fat loss phase than you are to regain lost muscle tissue. Now, mind you, I was dieting on less than half the calories by the end of my prep that I was eating prior to starting the prep. So within the first week, I had gained back around 10 plus pounds and I continued to gain fat at a rapid rate. And I literally felt like a failure after this first contest prep. I put in all this work to get stage lean. And within a few weeks, I looked like I hadn't prepped at all. And honestly, you know, excuse my language, but it was a mind fuck to say the least. Like I really struggled with my body image, with my, my desire to go forward, my motivation, and all these different things. So after that experience, I started diving into why this occurred. I really wanted to know why did my coach tell me to do this and why didn't I respond? Because at first I thought there was something wrong with me. Like I followed his instructions to a T. I was very diligent on the plan. I ate exactly the calories and the macros that I had eaten prior to it, but I didn't understand why was my body now that I had went through a fat loss phase, not responding the same way that it did 12 weeks prior when I weighed 50 pounds plus. And, you know, obviously now we know about metabolic adaptation and all these other physiological changes that occur during a deficit. However, I didn't know any of that, but you know, I was lucky in the fact that I was already uh, following evidence-based practitioners at the time. So I had just recently attended a, a muscle camp held by Lane Norton. So I was following all his stuff at the time. And keep in mind, there was no, he wasn't doing YouTube and all that kind of stuff. However, I went in person, but at that time he actually had, and I'm sure if any OGs out in the audience, um, you know, have done this for a long period of time, he used to have a podcast with Sohi Lee that was called Physique Science Radio. And in one of the episodes he had on Eric Trexler and honestly, at that point, I, I believe this was so early on. We're talking 2014. So I think Eric Trexler had to have been a master's student. He wasn't even a PhD, but they were talking about metabolic adaptations that physique athletes go through during a prep. And that's what you know kicked off my interest in metabolism, metabolic adaptation, and fat loss physiology, which obviously I've continued to dive into this day. So basically, my initial fat loss phases were a disaster, to be frank with you. But by making mistakes and experiencing failure, it made me gain a greater interest in learning not only how to get lean, but how to stay lean and maintain more of the progress I had made. And at that time, you know, going back, you know, close to 10 years ago, I was about 10, uh, I was about one year into coaching. And because I had gotten lean, I had so many people at my gym and on social media asking me for help with their own fat loss efforts. And I initially was able to get them to achieve their fat loss goals if they could stick to the diet. And 
the issue here was that we would only do 12-week coaching phases and it would just be a 12-week package and then they go on their merry way. We didn't have this continuous dieting program. It was really just like this one-off thing. So I was able to get clients lean and then we'd stop working together. And a few months later, they'd contact me and say that they had regained all the weight that they lost and they wanted to go back into a diet. So at that point, I realized that there had to be a better way. So since that time of around 2014 to 2015, I've researched, studied, and experimented with as many evidence-based strategies as I can find and have trialed them on myself and collected data. And then if they've proved to be a successful strategy with myself, I would start utilizing them with clients. And I've continued to refine my methods over the past decade I've been coaching. So I know that last time that we we spoke about the high energy flux uh, approach that I take with my clients, but you know, honestly, that actually came way before the, the term energy flux was even in existence. So I actually started doing that because around 2015, I looked at a study uh, in the literature from Rosenbaum and Leibel, where they showed that around 85 to 90% of the decreases we see in total daily energy expenditure during a deficit come from me. So I got a Fitbit and I started tracking my steps and then I started having clients do the same. But initially I didn't start with them, you know, setting a step target. I just had them track it on their own and I just let it fall where it did naturally. And I noticed that during diets, I'd have clients that were say between eight to 10,000 steps during a building phase. They were now taking like four to 5,000 steps during a fat loss phase, which would equal, you know, a few hundred calorie decrease in energy expenditure. So that's when I started to set step counts for them on a daily and weekly basis. And I noticed that their fat loss progress was much more consistent and predictable. So over the last 10 years, I've done, you know, 15 contest preps, and I've also done over hundred photo shoots and all of which I've had to get very lean for, whether it be to contest shape or at least photo shoot shape. So believe me when I tell you, I have done more diets than most people could ever imagine. And through those experiences, as well as through working with at, least, at this point, over a thousand individuals, a thousand clients, uh, I've been able to refine my skills, my approaches, my strategies towards fat loss, both for myself and then for clients. So that fat loss feels easier and maintenance is more attainable. And this isn't to say that losing a significant amount of body fat is ever easy, but in comparison to how I used to do things and how many other clients and and certainly other individuals within our space have approached dieting in the past, I found both approaches and principles that I can tailor to an individual to help them get to their goals in a manner that's far more sustainable and effective. And that feels easier, especially in comparison to what they've done previously. Man, that, this is this is incredible because I know the average person goes through over a hundred diets in their lifetime easily, and like you said earlier in, in your story, people might mistake you for being this lean shredded guy your whole life, and it comes easy. But because of your physique goals over the years, you've actually probably deliberately tried to do fat loss in quote unquote the right way many many different times, even more with more iterations than the average person. I would say I think the average person will we'll try things, but you went to that, that next extreme yet. There's a lot of relatable things there. So just, just to list them out again. So people who are listening, you know, the, the trauma with your tilapia, (laughs) like eating the same thing over and over strikes me as, you know, it's in the bucket of, is this sustainable, right? Can Mm -hmm. we just eat a certain diet that you cut, cut foods out? Um, your ability to get lean, but then gain it all back again, yo-yo dieting, weight cycling, body fat, overshooting, all Mm -hmm. of those concepts, the fact that physiology is really, really important here, that we can't just think in terms of a deficit, we can't just think in terms of right the, the calories, mm-hmm. that we're primed to regain fat more quickly, the mental and psychological aspects. And then I like most of all, at the end there, you talked about kind of the hierarchy of evidence, not just the uh, people you follow and the things that you read, but experimenting on yourself and then ex- even experimenting with your clients, them allowing you to do that and trusting you through that process. So this is a great segue. Because when we talk about making fat loss easier, we're not talking about doing it quickly necessarily. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about 
making it quote unquote simple in terms of like, just do this. It's more of let's make it easier on ourselves so that we don't have all of these negative consequences, especially the longer the duration and the more we have to lose. So what does that mean then to make it easier? Why is that important? And we can segue into the specifics. Absolutely. So really when it comes down to making fat loss easier, I really think that this comes down to nailing energy balance, which is the key principle that governs fat loss. Meaning we need to look at both sides of the energy balance equation. Because a lot of times when we talk about dieting, people only talk about calories. They only talk about the food, but they're not talking about both aspects. And really we will focus on calories and food because that's going to be the main intention. But I do suggest and encourage those out there to listen back to our our high energy flux podcast, because that's going to focus more on the calorie expenditure side of things. So when it comes to losing fat effectively, we basically have two main levers that we can pull. We can increase our calorie expenditure or the amount of calories that we burn per day, which is best done through increasing physical activity and meat as we've covered in the the previous podcast. And we can also decrease our calorie intake. And you hit the nail on the head, Philip, where you said that this isn't simple. So the thing is that although fat loss sounds simple on paper, which is why many people will just tell you that all you need to do is eat less and exercise more. That's a statement that's truthful, but it isn't helpful for many, which is where I really think that it's you know, focusing on the nutritional aspect of fat loss is pivotal because let's face it, 99% of us do not have the time and energy to create a deficit purely from exercise and to out-exercise a poor diet. And even if we did, doing so wouldn't help nearly as much with hunger and appetite management as focusing on our diet, which is the main issue as to why people struggle with losing fat and keeping it off especially. So one of the biggest struggles most of us have encountered or will encounter and experience during a fat loss phase is dealing with increased hunger and issues with appetite and satiety management. And hunger is one of the most common feelings dieters experience during a fat loss phase as hunger is a natural response to an energy deficit. So this is an inherent part of a fat loss process, but how we approach our diet and the hunger management strategies and tools that we do or don't use can make or break our ability to successfully get lean and stay lean. So the issue with hunger is it generally builds and increases the longer we diet and the leaner we get. As you, you know, as you lose more and more body fat, the more of an increase in hunger you'll notice and the more of an increase in appetite you'll experience which can threaten your ability to stick to the diet and adhere to the calorie deficit needed to continue losing body fat, which will continue to go down. So we have to make sure that we're, we're thinking about the long game. It's not just about what you can do you know, in terms of the calorie deficit you can induce in a day or a week. We have to think, what is the trajectory? What is the long-term? Let's, let's uh, backcast essentially. If your goal is to lose 20 pounds, let's look at this as if we're doing you know, 1% of you know, 0.5 to 1% of weight loss per week, and that comes out to one pound for you, we need 16 to 20 weeks. And this is, you know, when we look at hunger, we look at appetite, this is a completely natural and evolutionary response to being in a deficit. And it's a sign that, you know, when you're, you know, a lot of people get scared when they're hungry, but Mm -hmm. honestly, feeling hunger is a sign that you're losing body fat and depleting some of your body's energy source. So experiencing hunger isn't a bad thing, but it is something that we need to focus on managing. And this is why I've spent, you know, so much time and energy focusing on learning how to manage hunger and mitigate its effects, because this is something that I've personally struggled with. And I know that many others have as well. So by implementing a different nutritional approach to fat loss diets and adding in certain hunger management strategies within my clients' plans, I've been able to enhance my clients' adherence to the diet and and improve their ability to get lean and stay lean. So really when it comes down to making fat loss easier or feel easier at least, I'm focusing on different aspects of the diet, such as the calorie density and food volume. I'm looking at taking a protein-centric approach. I'm ensuring sufficient fiber intake and I'm modifying the palatability and processing level of the diet by doing what I call simple foods swaps. So really what that means is we're using a whole food first 
approach, which are all individual topics we can dive into as, you know, I know that part of this podcast, you really wanted to look into the importance of like things like food selection, food quality and satiety during a fat loss phase. And these are all aspects of the diet that I focus on when constructing a fat loss diet that's both of high quality and provides a, a ton of satiety per calorie, which is what is going to help make fat loss easier because the number one decrement to fat loss dieting or the one number one bottleneck or anchor that stands in people's way or presents a challenge or even holds people back from getting as lean as they want is dealing with issues with hunger and thus the downstream effect that hunger and appetite has on their ability to adhere to the diet. Yeah. So I'm really curious then about behind the scenes, right? If if you've, a client was working with you and let's say they have the basics down, you, you've got them primed for the fat loss phase already. They're training, they're moving, they're tracking in some way, tracking calories, tra tracking macros. We don't, we don't have to get into too much detail about the, the fact that that's going to be necessary to an extent. Um, how do we develop an awareness of the hunger and what to do about it? And do we get ahead of it as we get into the fat loss phase, do you have a plan for those substitutions? Do we have a plan for if this, then that, our tracking biofeedback, all those things? Because one approach is start the diet, get some results, get some wins, and then deal with hunger as it comes up for that person, because some people have more hunger than others. And another is let's just get way ahead of it, start substituting right from day one. What do you think about that? Yeah, so I'm I'm really something that in terms of dieting, I'm proactive. And when it comes to training, I'm reactive. So what I mean by that, let me extrapolate out on that, is that when it comes to dieting, I know that there are inherent physiological implications and ramifications that all people experience. We see that when we lose body fat, we see a decrease in leptin, we see an increase in ghrelin. So essentially what that means is we see a decrease in satiety and an increase in hunger. And that is a natural and inherent part of fat loss dieting. And I'll tell you, Philip, I've dieted hundreds of individuals and never had someone that has told me when they're losing a sufficient and a significant amount of body fat that they haven't experienced hunger. So I like to get ahead of that. And really how I do that is I look at several dietary factors that I focus on to increase satiety and manage hunger for clients who are in fat loss phases. So generally, the first thing I'm looking to do in terms of food selection for fat loss dieting is looking at the calorie density of the foods we choose during a diet. Because really what I want to do is I want to create the most satiating plan for them to be able to manage hunger throughout the ent entirety of the phase. And I have a phasic approach to this. So you'll see as I go more into like the methods that I use that it is a periodized approach. So yes, there are different tools and different strategies that I use throughout the fat loss diet that become... Um, you know, they, they garner more benefit as we get leaner and leaner, but there's things from the start that we can educate clients on and we could focus on from the, from the bat. And so these are things that I'm utilizing. So for instance, calorie density and food volume are, are strategies and areas of a diet that I'm utilizing to set a client up for success. Because here's the thing, you know, we could forecast that this diet is going to take 12 to 16 weeks, but if a person isn't able to get past the first three or four weeks due to lack of adherence and, and dealing with hunger and a, a big thing that I find that's an issue is that a lot of people only focus on the calories and macro aspect of dieting. So what do they do? They take their existing diet, they know they have to create a 500 calorie deficit, and all they do is portion control, meaning that they use the same hyperplatable energy-dense food sources that they have and just eat less of them. So say that they eat, you know, uh, higher fat, you know, meat sources. They have, you know, a ribeye every single night. You know, they went from a seven ounce ribeye to a five ounce ribeye. Well, all we're seeing is yes, you're, you're decreasing the calories, but you're also decreasing food volume. So a lot of times when people think eat less and exercise more, they think you have to eat less food, which really I'm going to go through this, but a lot of my philosophy is I want them to eat more food weight and food volume, but less calories. So really the first thing that I look to do is calorie density. So within calorie density, this is 
also referred to as energy density, but this is the amount of calories contained in a given weight of food. So essentially, it breaks down to how many calories are contained in one gram of a food source. And I like to leverage the calorie density of the food that I use in a fat loss phase. So as we get deeper and deeper into a diet and experience more hunger and a heightened level of appetite, we're consuming more low energy density, high volume foods Mm -hmm. that provide a ton of satiety per calorie and are more filling and help to manage hunger better so that we can get as much fullness per calorie within the traits of our current target calorie budget. And the best way that I found to do this when going from, say, a building or a maintenance phase to a fat loss phase is to transition from high calorie density food sources to lower calorie density food sources. So this could look like going from fattier cuts of meat and poultry and dairy to lower calorie leaner sources of protein and and to include more low calorie density items like fiber containing vegetables, fruits, and whole grains that provide a ton of fullness, yet less calories than their higher energy density counterparts. So by making this this switch, we're able to get more bang for our buck in terms of the amount of fullness and satiety we experience from the amount of calories we need to eat to continue losing body fat. And it's really important to be able to distinguish between low energy density and high energy density foods, not only for constructing your regular baseline diet that you're going to use, you know, Monday through Sunday during, you know, when you're locked into your fat loss phase, but also we have to think about this, that I, I now, you know, I, I've previously worked with a lot of professional athletes, a lot of competitors, but at this point in my career, I work with a lot of lifestyle clients, a lot of business owners, people that are busy and that have other priorities other than fitness. So I'm always trying to make fitness a part of their life, not their entire life. And that includes the, the nutritional aspect of fitness. So if someone wants to lose fat, we need to be able to navigate and also look ahead and see what are going to be certain bottlenecks or certain anchors in their mm-hmm. way or, or certain obstacles, essentially. So one huge obstacle is eating out. And so within that, if you're able to know and you have awareness around the energy density of different food sources, you know, when you might not be able to always weigh and measure out every portion size of foods that you're able to eat, whether it be you're out at a restaurant or you're even at a family member's house and you're not able to prepare and weigh your foods. However, you can use the calorie density of different food sources to make food choices that are more in line with your goals and help you more easily maintain a deficit. So for instance, I'll give you an example. When I go out to eat, the first thing that I look at on the menu is the protein options. And I know that lean sources of protein, such as grilled chicken, turkey burgers, and tuna, are going to have a lower energy density than things like fried chicken, your bacon cheeseburgers, or ribeye. So I'll go with a leaner protein source. I've already saved hundreds of calories there. Then on to carb. I'm going to look at, you know, when it comes to different carb sources, I'm looking at lower energy density carb sources that are more satiating. So I'm looking at something like a baked potato or veggies instead of your fries, your potato skins, uh, your pasta with cream sauce, like things that are going to have you know, thousands of extra calories. Everything on the appetizer menu. Absolutely. So as <laughs> you know, I, I know in my mind that a baked potato and veggies both have a lower energy density, but for the same amount of food weight as those other options, but also from a satiety index perspective, they're much better at increasing fullness. And I also like educating clients and making them aware of high calorie density items that can we can reduce from the diet, especially when going out to eat, that will help them to spontaneously or easily reduce the amount of calories that we eat in a meal. So I'll often advise them to leave off things like your dressings, your cream sauces, your oils and your butters, and high calorie condiments and spreads like, say, barbecue sauce or mayo, as all of these are very high in calorie density. However, so so they pack a ton of calories to a meal, but they provide little to no satiety benefits. So you're getting all these calories, but you're getting no fullness from this. So this is just, I don't want to say wasted calories, but think about it in the constraints of a budget. It's almost like if you had a financial budget and you knew that you know you had certain expenses, you have bills to pay, you're going to prioritize that, but you wouldn't like frivolously spend on things that are just a waste of an investment that provide no return on an investment, provide you no satisfaction, no fulfillment, sure. no enjoyment. 
you would make smarter investments. The same thing can be said with our food choices. So we can even switch from using like high calorie condiments like cream based sauces and condiments to lower calorie condiments like yellow mustard or hot sauce and save hundreds of calories in the process. And these are really simple, simple swaps. And having the knowledge of the calorie density of different foods from having spent time tracking can really help you make better food choices during a diet in terms of getting more bang for your buck in terms of food volume and satiety for your calorie budget. Now, next, the next strategy that I like to use, and I do this from the start. Yeah, but before you get there, just just so some more practical strategies for folks. If someone is completely uncertain as to calorie density, um, what's what's an easy way to do it? Is it is it a calorie per gram type of deal where you just kind of compare it that way? Is it a satiety index? Is it a guide where you just have, here are all the cuts of meat from highest to lowest protein density? You know, what do you think? Yes. Yeah, so honestly, the best method that I found is I always tell clients because technically, if you look in the literature, energy density is defined as calories per gram, one gram, but no one eats one gram of food. So that's unrealistic. So this is how I like to look at it. I like clients to think about a 100 gram serving because 100 grams of a vegetable or a fruit or even you know 100 grams of a protein source is a sufficient amount. So I like them to compare the calorie density of different food sources within the same bracket. So for instance, if we look at something like and I know this because I often have this conversation with clients, but additives to protein shakes. So a lot of times I have uh, clients that want to utilize like a, um, they want to do a protein smoothie or right now cre- the Ninja Creamy is really popular. So everyone's doing those uh, ice cream concoctions with like whey isolate and they want to add things in. So they're always asking me about size. So I know this off the top of my head because I've went through this like so many times with people. And I always try to compare different energy densities of food. And here's the thing, just because a food is healthy does not mean that it's, it fits your diet or that it has a low amount of calories. So for instance, the best example I can give you with this is in terms of what to add to protein shakes or even to Greek yogurt and, and things like that, or to your oats and things, you know, things like that. And so the two most common things or additives or sides are going to be either fruit or it's going to be a nut butter. And so the greatest example I can give you with this is hundred calories of strawberries or hundred grams of strawberries is 36 calories. Now for that same hundred grams of peanut butter, which keep in mind, it's the same amount of food weight. You're getting the same thing. But if you were to measure 100 grams on a food scale of peanut butter, it's going to be far less in food volume, far less fiber. It's going to have less micronutrients, less polyphenols, less of all these beneficial antioxidants, and you're going to get less fullness because 100 grams of strawberries is a nice cup of strawberries. So keep that in mind. However, 100 grams of strawberries is 36 calories. 100 grams of peanut butter is around 632 calories. So that's a massive discrepancy, about 20 times difference between the two. However, you added the same thing into your shake. So really, when we look at energy density, I like going by 100 grams. So you can do that in terms of protein comparisons. So you can do 100 grams of grilled chicken, skinless chicken breast versus chicken thighs, or you can do even more drastic, uh, you know, um, manipulations or comparisons and just really feel and and just look at it. And I always like looking at things like a budget because I tend to work with a lot of first type A individuals and then very business oriented, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, clients. So I have a lot of other coaches that I coach, a lot of other fitness professionals, gym owners, you know, you name it that I work with, especially from a fitness uh, professions perspective. But these are business owners. These are busy people. And they're also those that are invested not only into their fitness, but into business. So when I always, when I, when I go back to these financial budget uh, analogies, it always makes sense for them. So I'm always trying to go back to the fact that would you make, if you had a certain monetary budget in each month, and you needed 50% of your, you know, if, if we're going to do 
financial investments, you would spend on your the things that you needed, the necessities, and you would always prioritize those. Well, that should be your nutrient-dense whole food sources. That should be your low-energy-dense food sources that are going to give you a ton of satiety per calorie. And then if you have like this other little discretionary income, so say the 10 or 20%, then it could go towards higher energy density, taste your foods, but you shouldn't make that the predominance of your diet. And that's where really looking at the energy density of foods and really doing a comparative analysis because we can look at 100 grams of fruit compared to 100 grams of chocolate the chocolate might maybe um, more you know preferential towards an individual. So a lot of my my women they love chocolate. A lot of my female clients, but I always tell them, listen, we shouldn't be making decisions which are going to leave you feeling hungrier and less able to stick to the diet because you're uh, you're you're prioritizing those options over the things that could really provide you with the best bang for your buck in terms of fullness per calorie, satiety per calorie, your micronutrients, your fiber intake, and all these other important and building blocks. These are the big rocks of your fat loss phase, first and foremost. So here's an interesting thing. Speaking of a budget, we all have our calorie budget. Do you mm-hmm. set, try to compare that to a grams budget uh, for those calories, like X calories per gram total for the day? Do, do, you, do you ever do it in that way? Like, So if, you're, if your budget is 1,800 calories, mm-hmm. you're going to say... Um, however many grams, uh, what would that be? Like one and a half would be extremely high, extremely low density. And then more than that, you get what I'm saying? No, so I never get too complicated. Yeah, so no, no, no. I've never, and I do know those statistics off the top of my head. So for instance, we look at things like carrot, we look at strawberries, we're looking at 0.6 calories per gram or under. Uh, in terms of energy density. When we actually look into the literature on energy density, I never get into these nuances unless it's like a fitness professional, but uh, we see that we don't have an ability to moderate our intake physiologically. So naturally from a hunger and appetite and satiety perspective, over 1.5 grams or 1.5 calories per gram in terms of our actual response to energy density of foods. So we see that all of the hyperplatable foods are at a way higher spectrum of those. So if you look at like condensed fat sources, one gram of a fat source is going to be nine calories per gram. So really, even if we do a calorie comparison between like a whole food carbohydrate and a fat source, that's why we see a huge discrepancy in terms of energy density between these items. So for instance, 100 grams of of butter is going to be far more calorically dense than 100 grams of sweet potato. And so I never do those because I know that that gets really into minutia with clientele. I don't give them like, I don't want a black and white perspective. I really want them to think of things as what is more uh, conducive for my goals? Like what food choices are going to suit my goals best and what are more conducive foods and less conducive foods? So if we're looking at really low energy density food sources, your vegetables, your fruits, your whole grains, your lean protein sources, these are going to provide a ton of satiety and very low calories for the amount or very low amount of calories for the amount of grams and the food weight that they provide us with. And then if we have extra in our budget, just like we would with a discretionary income, then we can allocate towards some tastier foods. But you'll see as people get leaner into the diet, I'm going to start prioritizing different things because that's where really, I guess my expertise comes in both from, you know, working with so many people being through, you know, getting so, you know, lean so many times myself that that's where you really have to get very specific with food choice, palatability and different aspects of that. But even before that, Mm -hmm. I get into different nutritional and nutrient aspects. So from here, generally what I do is I first focus on energy density and then I'm giving them certain targets to hit, but it's not just from a macronutrient perspective, because like you mentioned, they already have the the basics nailed. They have their calorie intake, they've tracked, they have their protein, carbs, and fats. And that's what everyone in this industry talks about. And those are important. Don't get me wrong. So the one thing I do want to hit on that the rest of the industry does is protein intake, because the next strategy that I use to increase satiety and manage hunger during a diet is to utilize a high protein diet as protein is the most satiating macronutrient. So it helps us feel fuller and manage hunger better. 
better. And there's this theory called the protein leverage hypothesis, which describes why protein is so important for satiety as research on the protein leverage theory has found that we eat until we get enough protein and we will not stop until we hit that point. And so we need to reach this, this threshold essentially when we're eating ad libitum to reach our natural level of fullness. And there's also research that has found that increasing the protein intake of a diet from 15% of calories to 30% of calories led to a spontaneous reduction of over 440 calories per day throughout a 12 week period. However, the best thing about the study is this was an ad libitum diet or this was an ad libitum study. It was not a dieting study. So these individuals created close to 500 calorie deficit just due to feeling fuller from eating a high protein diet, which is why prioritizing protein is a major key when dieting for fat loss. Now, we, we know that in terms of that is something that we should all be doing. However, beyond that, then I'm looking at different nutrient values of things. So yes, I, I'm telling individuals, here's your, your calorie budget, here is your protein target or your protein range. Those two things are what most of the industry do. The next thing I focus on, instead of going to carbs or fats, that's not really what I'm focusing on. What I'm focusing on next is fiber intake. So what I want to make sure is to ensure a sufficient fiber intake. And besides protein, the other main nutrient or the other food component that I focus on that's been shown to be highly filling um, you know, aspect of the diet is fiber. So this is another aspect of the diet that I look to leverage. So high fiber foods can increase fullness and reduce hunger as high fiber foods generally provide a ton of food volume. So we're getting back to that energy density aspect with the food volume for a low amount of calories. And they allow us to feel fuller during the meal, but also after, and they delay our gastric emptying rate so that we feel fuller for longer periods of time. And we don't feel, you know, you know, the worst thing in a diet is where you've had a really tasty meal and it's been incredible. It tastes great. However, you're just as hungry after that meal as you were when you started it. That's not the, the intention of food, especially when dieting. A lot of people eat and make these macro creations and they do this macro Tetris and stuff where the food tastes great in the moment, but it drives them to want to eat more. The intention of eating food, especially during a diet, is to manage your hunger well enough that you're actually full after a, a meal and you can go a few hours and not be mm -hmm. completely food focused. But when we actually look at research on fiber, there's research that has found that for every 14 grams of fiber consumed, it decreases someone's ad libitum calorie intake by 10%. So this is significant. And Usually, the more fiber that you have in your diet, the fuller that you will feel. And it's also a good sign that your diet is nutrient dense, as most of our dietary fiber should be coming from food sources, whole food sources, essentially, like your fruits, your vegetables, and whole grains, which are also packed with micronutrients, including vitamins, minerals, and cofactors. So this is where we get into the food quality aspect. Like We can't neglect that. A lot of times, when we only think about macros in isolation, we think about your protein, your carbs, and your fats. We don't eat macros in isolation. We eat food. So we've really got to focus on other nutritional aspects. Look. Let's look at the fiber. Let's look at the micronutrients. Let's look at the vitamins, the polyphenols, the, the minerals that are contained in these foods, which is really why you want to be getting your fiber from whole food sources rather than from protein bars or fiber supplements or these, you know, high carb, you know, high fiber tortilla, you know, things mm -hmm. that a lot mm -hmm. of people use. So one thing that I specifically like to include in a, in my diets is one big ass salad in all my fat loss diets, but salad packs a ton of satiety per calorie. So with every bite of a salad, you feel fuller despite taking in such a low amount of calories and a salad helps to slow down your eating rate, which is another thing in the literature that we actually see that slower eating rates actually induce greater feelings of satiety. But when you eat, processed foods. So if you look at like Kevin Hall's research, you see that higher eating rates are with processed foods are associated with a much higher calorie intake. And so we want to not only eat things that are going to make us feel full, but are also going to help us slow down and practice some mindful eating techniques. Because a lot of it, reasons why people have issues 
beyond just the fat loss phase itself, but in, in just general life and they overconsume calories is because they eat mindlessly. They're distracted. They're not in the moment. They're not focusing. And they also consume foods that allow them and exacerbate that effect. So if you had fast food, mm. yes, it's fast because the delivery to you is fast, but also because you can consume a ton of calories before you ever get those satiety signals from your stomach to your brain that you're actually satiated. My name is Tony. I'm a strength lifter in my 40s. Thank you to Phil and his Wits and Weights community for helping me learn more about nutrition and how to implement better ideas into my strength training. Phil has a, a very, very good understanding of macros and chemical compounds and hormones and all that. And he's continuously learning. And that's what I like about Phil. He's got a great sense of humor. He's very relaxed, very easy to talk to. Uh, one of the greatest things about Phil, in my view, is that he practices what he preaches. He also works out with barbells. He trains heavy, not as heavy as me, but he trains heavy. So if you talk with him about getting in better shape, eating better, he's probably going to give you some good advice. And I would strongly recommend you talk with him and he'll help you out. Thanks. So another thing that's great about high fiber foods, they generally tend to be lower energy food sources that contain a great micronutrient profile. So they have you know, they're low energy density, but they have a rich nutrient density and provide a ton of volume and are highly satiating as a result. And then I think this is the last aspect that we can get into that you may be most interested in because this is where we really get nuanced with things and where there are very specific manipulations. And this was when someone gets really lean. So at the beginning of a diet, I almost do like um, this hedonic, you know, descent down a staircase. Mm -hmm. And really what that means is we're going from more palatable foods to less palatable foods throughout the course of a dieting phase, because as you get leaner, it's going to be harder and harder to stick to a deficit. So really when it comes down to it, another aspect of constructing fat loss diets that I found a massive benefit from, which not only increases satiety, but makes dieting for fat loss far easier is modifying the palatability and the processing level of the diet by making simple food swaps and utilizing a whole foods first approach. So as we get deeper and deeper into a diet and we get leaner, a few things happen that magnify our hunger levels and increase our likelihood of veering off the diet and not being able to hit our calorie macro targets if we don't manage them properly. And that's the fundamental thing. We could talk about all these nuanced aspects of nutrition and training and movement and all these other things. If you can't adhere to the plan that you're on, you're never going to be successful. So that is what we have to ensure. And that's why I like to get ahead of them with the other three strategies that I employed and that I discuss. However, when things get harder, I always have levers. I always have tools in the toolbox to be able to integrate into the diet to make things easier for my clients at that time. And so when we get deeper into a diet, we get leaner, we see certain things happen. So we see leptin levels decrease. Uh, so our, our satiety levels decrease, our ghrelin levels increase, which increases our drive to eat. And then we also see that our food focus increases, all of which make energy dense, hyperplatable, delicious foods more appealing, but it also makes it more difficult for us to moderate our calorie intake from these items. And this is because the more palatable or more tasty, essentially a food is, the more this food triggers the reward center in the brain, which increases our likelihood to you know, overeat that food. And this is where being too flexible with food choice can be a slippery slope because a lot of times when you're including these tasty foods, as you get deeper and deeper into a diet, when you get leaner and leaner and your calorie budget becomes more and more constrained, these things become more and more tempting. And so if you're playing macro Tetris and you're fitting super tasty, hyperplatable processed foods into your diet, you're going to be more likely to slow down or stall your fat loss progress due to you know lacking adherence, but also over-consuming calories, even mm -hmm. if you don't mean to. And this is what's referred into literature as passive overconsumption, meaning this wasn't done purposely. This is just a drive to eat. And sometimes you don't even realize, because like I said, a lot of people eat 
mindlessly or they eat distracted or they're busy. So they don't even realize that they took down, you know, 800 calories in a meal instead of 400 calories. So really when it comes down to it, I, I often have these conversations with clients, especially when they're getting leaner and really have to get down to the brass tacks. And I always say that although you can eat whatever you want, so I'm not trying to put like this pink elephant in the roof mm-hmm. or this dichotomous relationship with food. I'm always like, listen, although you can eat whatever you want and lose fat, it isn't realistic once you get lean. So just because a food fits your macro targets doesn't mean that you should try fitting it in, especially on a daily basis. Because if you constantly include and expose yourself to higher uh, palatability foods, you're going to need to use more willpower. You're going to need to use more discipline and a lot of more mental currency to try to not overconsume them. So you're in this constant battle with yourself. You're already hungry. And now you're putting yourself in a situation. It's almost like, you know, a negative exposure therapy, essentially, where you're kind of just torturing yourself. It's almost like if you had Mm -hmm. a temptation food that you always knew you binged on, like utilizing that in a diet, it, it just makes no sense to me. And this is why I find that a great way to mitigate the situation is to use simple, satiating, and less palatable food sources, which include more whole and unprocessed foods to be really beneficial during a diet as they provide more fullness per calorie, yet less calories per serving. And they also don't inherently drive up our appetite so that we want to eat more of them like hyperplatable and processed foods do. So to manage hunger throughout the course of a diet, I'll often lower the palatability of the foods I'm eating as hyperplatable ultra processed foods are less satiating per calorie first and foremost. And they also have been shown to drive up this passive overconsumption, which is why we're more likely to overeat on them. And this is where I've really found sticking with minimally processed whole foods to be highly beneficial for both myself and clients, especially as we get leaner, because these are going to provide us with more satiety per calorie. They're going to help us feel fuller for longer while eating less calories and being in a deficit. And they also help me managing our calorie budget more effectively as they're easier to moderate our consumptions of. So generally, the advice that I give to clients, and I would even give to anyone that asked me for this type of advice, is if your goal is to lose a significant amount of body fat, aim for, especially as you get leaner, aim for satiating, yet you know, simple yet satiating foods that suit your goals and fit their calorie budget um, to help manage that budget like you would your bank account. So I'll tell you how I go about this because I do do these financial analogies a lot. And it's something mm-hmm. that I realize that it often speaks to people and it kind of sticks with them when I look at it like this. So this is personally how I go through my own fat loss phase. So we, we discuss some of my fat loss failures, but then also my successes. This is the mindset that I've utilized towards fat loss that has made me successful up until this point. And so how I personally look at this when I'm constructing my own fat loss diet is my total daily energy expenditure determines and dictates my calorie budget. So how much I'm moving and how much my basal metabolic rate and all these other uh, components on my you know total daily energy expenditure, that is what dictates how many calories I can eat and still afford to lose weight. And I aim to manage my calorie intake like I do my financial budget. And to do so, I weigh the calorie cost of each food choice in terms of the satiety it provides and the calories it contains, and then make choices that most closely align with my goals and my budget. Because in order to improve your body composition, you need to make sure the food you choose fit your budget as your choices can either make or break the bank. And we also, when we look at like the difference between hyperplatable foods and food processing and all these different levels of things, we have great data that shows the vastly different effects that the two have. So we have, you know, metabolic ward research from Dr. Kevin Hall that specifically looks at the different effects of diets containing either minimally processed whole foods versus a diet of ultra processed foods on body composition. And this study found that when they provided participants with meals that were matched for calories and they match all the macros. So we're talking protein, fiber, carbs, and fat. And then they allowed clients to eat to fullness. These individuals ate an average of 500 calories more per day when their meals were comprised and made up of processed foods as compared to when their meals were simple and made up of whole foods. So when they were on the ultra processed diet, they, they naturally overconsumed calories and gained fat. Whereas when they were on the minimally processed whole foods diet, they ate 500 calories less per day and lost body fat without even purposely trying to do so. And what's really interesting about this study is that 
they looked at the satiety levels and they asked, you know, individuals both subjectively and objectively and measured these different levels of, of appetite and satiety. And they found that they had the same level of, you know, satiety and fullness. However, it took 500 more calories mm-hmm. per day to reach that same amount of fullness with the processed diet as it did mm-hmm. the whole foods diet, which shows how l- less satiating these ultra processed foods are as com- you know, compared to whole foods and why we're more likely. And so, you know, it, it happens so commonly that we overeat them. So, you know, one cookie turns into a dozen, you know, all these things, it's mm-hmm. like a downstream spiral. So it's really important to be more intentional. And also when you approach fat loss dieting to be really um, informed, but also intentional about the food choices and the selections you make. We can we can take that entire clip, Brandon, and that will literally give you everything you need to know about why you're making these choices during fat loss. And and you don't want to mention that it's quote unquote healthier, good, bad, you know, all the traditional mm-hmm. tropes of these things that, you know, make people think that they have to make a moral choice rather than something that's in line with their physiology. I t- I mean, I took so many notes and I've heard all these in bits and pieces before, but the way you put it together how whole foods versus processed foods stack the, the benefits stack on top of them on top of each other time and again when you talk about the fact that we get fuller right and we will eat to our natural fullness the how fiber uh, helps with this as well the you know you said having the salad every day again I, the salad i was also thinking about fruit when you talked about um, cravings and uh you know fruits this off limit thing for some people it's kind of insane you know in the fitness industry but i'll tell you when i'm on a fat loss phase man give me the sweet cherries give me the bananas mm-hmm. give me the the blueberries and it's like almost like eating you know uh highly valuable food that's actually not so <laughs> no 100 percent. I, I really actually want to hit on that because a lot of yeah, times yeah. when i do discuss this with clients or i've done presentations on palatability and modulating and modifying the palatability of food sources sometimes people are like man, why would I want to switch from like all these tasty foods to plain foods? And here's the thing. We have to view things. We have to stop viewing things dichotomously. Foods are not good and bad, tasty and disgusting, you know, great and bland. Like we have to stop looking at it like that. First of all, we're blessed to be able to pursue a goal like fat loss. So this is a choice that you made. No one has forced you, pressured you, nothing. This is an active choice that you've made to better your body composition, better your physique, better your your metabolic health. There are so many downstream benefits of fat loss dieting that go from the physiology to also the psychology. So a better, um, you know, body image, a uh, better confidence level, you know, feeling better about yourself, just feeling better in your clothes, how you feel around your family, really impacting people around you, whether it be your children or your spouse, whatever it may be, there's so many positive benefits. And if you are in the privileged position where you could pay and hire a coach to help you get to your goal, you are one of the very fortunate individuals out there. So I always want to make this apparent. I always tell clients about this, especially when I have someone that has had a really tumultuous relationship with dieting in the past. They've been through chronic dieting cycles where they feel like a failure and they feel like they're just going to compete, continue to repeat their mistakes of the past. I always tell them, listen, this is a fresh start. Just like, for instance, if you were to slip off your diet, you're always just, and I want people to really understand this and I'll say it twice if I need to, you're always one meal away from being back on track. You are always Mm -hmm. one meal away from being back in track. If you slip up, don't just say F it. Just like if you you had a flat tire in your car, you wouldn't slash all other three tires because of that incident. So you would, you know, hopefully what you would do is call someone or you'd replace that tire and you keep it moving. And so really when it comes down to it, we shouldn't look at these things through this dichotomous relationship, you know, this rigid restraint mindset where we look at things as black and white, good or bad, on diet, off diet. We should look at these things as uh, shades of gray. This is a spectrum. So what I talk about with palatability, meaning you went from a building phase where you were 
hypo or hypercaloric. You were eating in a surplus. You had more than enough energy availability. You had sufficient amount of calories. And probably by the end of it, you're at your highest body fat point, first and foremost. You're also, your leptin is high. Your ghrelin is really low. You probably have no appetite. Like you're, it's almost like a chore to get these meals down. And we've mm -hmm. all been there that have really pushed ourselves for muscle growth, where we've really had to push calories for a prolonged period of time. Then you go into a dieting phase. And as we get leaner and leaner and our calories go down, we just make better food choices. We make simple food swaps. We switch to more, you know, whole foods that are going to be micronutrient dense. Because remember, when you're in a calorie deficit, you're more susceptible to micronutrient deficiencies. Because by proxy, if you went from eating 2,500 calories and now you have to eat 2,000, or now, you know, you're three months into a diet and you're at 17 or 1,800 calories, you have lost a considerable amount of your calorie budget and also your micronutrient budget. So let's make every single calorie count. And really, when I say that, I mean that from a satiety perspective, a fullness perspective, and enjoy perspective, um, you know, yeah. making this from an adherence perspective, but also from a micronutrient density perspective, because really I do a lot of expensive blood work with clientele. And I have a lot of people come to me that I, I can't even express how many times I have, especially females come to me that have many nutrient deficiencies. I do a full analysis on micronutrient profiles. When someone comes to me and does a consultation and decides that they want to onboard with uh, coaching with me. And I'll tell you, I've been coaching for 10 years and I will say that maybe one out of a hundred clients that new clients that comes to me in the course of a year does not have inherent micronutrient deficiencies from a lack of food quality, from a lack of supplementation, from just, you know, lifestyle, especially if you're a chronic dieter, but this is especially susceptible when you are in a fat loss phase. And here's the thing, for instance, if you have, you're at a deficiency of three cofactors, let's look at selenium, iodine, and, uh, and zinc. Those will all downregulate thyroid production. But if we look into literature on those with low thyroid hormone, it can decrease your basal metabolic rate, which accounts for 50 to 60% of the calories you expend per day. A, a low thyroid level, so clinical hypothyroidism, can decrease your BMR in the literature by up to 25%. That does not mean that every single person that's hypothyroid sees a 25% de decrease in their total daily energy expenditure, but you have up to that. So let's look at it from this comp uh, component. If BMR makes up 60% of your total daily energy expenditure, and now you have a 25% decrease, that means your total daily energy expenditures decrease by 15% because of multiple inherent problems. And one of the many reasons that I see that people come up on lab work as being hypothyroid is because of nutrient deficiencies, high stress and chronic dieting. So these are things we have to work on on the back end. We have to be very intentional. You know, this industry, it's really interesting. This industry has gotten so into macros and calories that we've neglected everything else. And really, if you're a nutrition coach or you're a nutrition professional, we need to speak about nutrition because people don't eat macros. They don't eat calories, they eat food. And so we need mm -hmm. to talk about food quality, food choice, food selection, really educate people. And that's where I really try to take this modifying palatability approach because I want to leverage these different tools to be able to set people up for success. And here's the thing. The reason I do it almost in like a descending curve is the leaner you get, the hungrier you get. The leaner you get, the more your appetite goes up. Mm -hmm. The leaner you get, the, more, the longer you've been on a diet. So the more diet fatigue you have, the more mental currency has been drained, more willpower that you're lacking. So we need to employ different strategies towards the tail end of the diet to A, ensure that when you're at your hungriest, we're utilizing strategies that are going to ensure that you're as full as possible. Now, hunger is an inherent part of dieting. So I'm never going to tell someone you're never going to experience hunger because honestly, if you're in an energy deficit and you're liberating and oxidizing body fat, that's that's just par for the course. We're all going to experience hunger, but it's about making these this approach as manageable as possible. And when is that most essential? It's not only during the beginning, it's also towards the end where you're at your highest susceptibility to just veering off the rails and falling off. And that's why a lot of people, they start fat loss diets, but they never actually get to their goal. So we see that in the literature that seven out of eight individuals that go on a diet will lose weight. That doesn't mean they, they hit their weight loss goal, but they will lose a significant amount of body weight. So around 86% of individuals that go on a diet will lose weight. Now, here's the thing. When we look at the diet recidivism rates, we see that in, within three years of having dieted, 
most people, 95%, 90 to 95% of people will have regained all that weight they lost or more. We see, you know, in terms of all or more, we look at 33 to 66%. However, let's look at the dieting rates per year. So if we actually look at the dieting rates per year in Westernized countries, industrialized countries like the US, UK, Canada, we see that between 42 to 63% of the population reports going on a diet every single year. These are the same individuals going on a diet every single year to lose weight. And why is it so um is it happening so constantly and so repetitively? Because a lot of people, yes, they'll lose a couple pounds, but then they regain it. They go through these the cyclical fashion. They never get to their goal. So really what I'm trying to do is utilize methods and really educate clients. I'm utilizing things that are going to help them in that moment and, and through that phase so that they can get to their goal. And we could utilize a 12 to 16 week phase to get them to their fat loss goal, get them lean, and then focus our other time on recovering from the diet maintaining, living to learn at maintenance, and then focusing on building muscle and going into a state of abundance in terms of energy availability, focusing on fueling our training and getting out of this mindset that you always have to be in a energy deficit. You always have to be in fat loss dieting because so many people look at fat loss as like this permanent state, this permanent phase. That's all they do because they never get to their goal. So really what I try to do is set my clients up for success, which is why I never put a client right into a fat loss phase. We always go through mm-hmm. a primer phase mm-hmm. first. You know, I believe a healthy body is a responsive body and that's mm-hmm. the way, the method that I used to get there. So I set them up for success at the start. Then we go into say their, their goal is fat loss and we've done our lab work. We've seen all their physiological markers or psychological markers. They're in a great place. We've eaten sufficient amount of calories for an extended period of time. They've been out of a deficit for a prolonged period of time. We've reversed any negative metabolic and hormonal adaptations that they may have sustained from previous diets before coming to me. Then we go into a deficit. We're trying to get in and we're trying to get out. That doesn't mean rapid fat loss. What that means is effective fat loss, meaning 12, 16, 20 weeks, whatever your goal necessitates, let's get in and then let's get out and let's focus Mm -hmm. on recovery, getting back to maintenance, reversing these metabolic adaptations, and then going into a state where we're focusing on performance and fueling your training performance, which is really going to drive your body composition progress moving forward so that the next time you do diet, say that's a year down the road or 16, 18 months down the road, you're going to be a better version of yourself because the next time you get lean, you're going to be more muscular. You're going to have much better habits. You're going to have been out of a state of being in a deficit and in a state of both physical and mental restriction where now you're looking forward to it because I'll tell you, there's been so many times that a female has come to me and has done diet after diet after diet. Mm -hmm. And I get them into a state, a mindset of abundance. So we're doing the high energy flux model. They're moving more, they're eating more. They're getting used to the fact that they can maintain their body weight on much higher calories. You know, then we go into a fat loss phase, we get them lean, but then we focus the next year on building muscle. And the next time that they go to diet, they fare, they face uh, far less challenges because they haven't been in this restricted state all year. So it's not like they're feeling like they're the, the first week of the diet, they're already like in hell or they're in purgatory because they've spent so much time in a state of being in a surplus. And so it's almost like um, something that, that they're encouraged to do as well as they're, they're really um, excited to get into a deficit because they're like, listen, you've been pounding food down my throat this whole phase. I really want to get into a state <laughs> where like, right. I'm, you know, I'm not feeling full all the time. I just kind of want to feel light on my feet. And like, then you're looking forward to these things. And that's really where I taking a phasic approach and utilizing nutritional periodization, going from one phase to another, making sure mm-hmm. each phase is as effective as possible. And the same thing uh, applies. So the palatability of foods, I'm lowering them throughout the course of the fat loss diet. However, then when we get out of there and we get into a state of abundance and I've gotten you back to maintenance calories and we've reversed a lot of the metabolic adaptations, we can start increasing palatability. And so it's never a permanent thing. This is a transient state, just like metabolic adaptation. A lot of people look at this as metabolic damage, which has been disproven 10 out of 10 times in the literature. However, these things that you face, the situations you go through, the fact that you have to you know, sustain an energy deficit, that's a temporary state and always should be. It should be a temporary state to get to your goal. And then we focus on maintaining that by utilizing more sustainable habits going forward. 
Man, your energy is is so passionate about this, Brandon. Um, I, I couldn't agree more with everything, but what I really love about this is even when you talk about being in that energy deficit, even when you talk about food choices, it's really keeping you in the highest energy state you can be, getting through the diet with without having to constantly interrupt it, maybe take breaks, refeeds, whatever, potentially, um, and getting it over with. And I agree, like if you can build for most of the year and get to the point where you're taking these mini cuts and it's hardly a blip in your life, that that's where people want to be. Um, regarding the the palatability and all that, um, I think you talked about body composition and, and the uh, over passive overconsumption. I think recently you also talked about how the thermic effect of feeding could be higher. And you just mentioned how uh, nutrient deficiency could cause a reduction in expenditure. So these are all really good things for people to think about how just the food choices could make it easier to diet <laughs> besides sure. the hunger and the satiety, which is awesome. Um, I want to respect your time. I know we're bottom of the hour. You, we, we probably have to wrap up or do you have a few minutes? Let's, you know what? Let's do the principles to track. I know that that will probably okay. tie us up in a really good Let's fashion. Let's finish it. Principles of tracking. Let's do it. All right. Go. So I'm a big believer that what isn't measured and tracked isn't managed as well and manipulated to truly yield optimal body composition progress, especially when we're in a fat loss phase where it's really challenging to induce and maintain an energy deficit when we aren't tracking. So a few principal uh, areas that I like to have clients track are their food intake, their body weight, their step count, uh, their sleep and their stress level. So what we really have to realize, and I often say this to clients because I have a lot of people come to me and they've never tracked in their lives. And I know that they're a little bit... Um, I guess, averse to it, or, you know, it's, it's really an introduction. I always try to meet people where they're at, but I always remind them, listen, whether we count calories or not, they always count. So regardless, if you count your calories, they still count. But if you've never tracked your calories, you're going to have very limited awareness around the calorie density. Like we just discussed previously, how important that is. You're going to have very little awareness around the calorie density of foods, which can lead you to making food choices that don't align with your calorie budget and your goals, which is why the most effective way for most individuals to improve their body composition is by you know, body composition by losing fat, gaining muscle or recomping is to track their dietary intake. So that's the first fundamental component that if I'm going to have someone track, the first thing we're looking at is food intake, because that's really where I find a lot of bottlenecks in the system. You know, someone might have some issues with training, but it's not like it only is inherently coming down to the fact that they don't log their lifts. Like, yes, logging your and tracking your lifts can really go a long way. But often what I notice is I have a lot of individuals that are advanced trainees, they're intermediate or advanced. They've been training a long period of time. So they track their lifts and they have all these spreadsheets, but they've never tracked their calories and macros. Mm -hmm. And so that's really where I try to introduce them to this, especially when it comes to a fat loss phase. And really when it comes to tracking, you know, we want to know what's in the food you're eating from a macro and calorie perspective so that you can account for it and to see if your dietary approach is getting you closer or further away from your physique Also, another reason why we should track is because intuitively, our brain doesn't know how many calories we've eaten in a meal. And this is because satiety is a delayed sensation and it takes different nutrients, different amounts of time to digest and send satiety signals to the brain to tell us to terminate a meal. And really when it comes down to it, our stomach sense food weight and food volume not calories. So if you were to make a meal, say, you know, a high energy dense meal. So say we do like something like a, a sandwich, we do a, a peanut butter and jelly. So we have bread, we have peanut butter and we have jelly. It's going to take much more calories from a PB and J to get full than from a whole food meal that consists of something like chicken breast and sweet potato. And this is because our stomach or, you know, our stomachs have gastric stretch receptors that sense pressure when we eat. And when these receptors sense a lot of food volume, and stretch, they send a signal to our brain that we've eaten enough and are full. And the great thing 
is there's a lot of low energy density foods that provide a ton of food volume for a low amount of calories, which allows us to get a lot of satiety per calorie or fullness per calorie eaten. And these include, you know, these food sources include things like your vegetables and your fruits, especially those with a high water content, like your salads. And even like we were talking about berries, berries are perfect. Strawberries, a great mm-hmm. option for high, you know, low energy density, high volume foods. So if you include more of these low energy density food items into your diet, you'll naturally eat less calories than if you eat highly processed energy dense food items that can override our hunger and satiety signals, just like we saw in the Kevin Hall study. When they eat processed foods, it just overrode their natural ad libitum eating habits where they ate 500 calories per day more per day. And so when it comes to tracking food intake, there are a lot of, you know, a ton of benefits. Spending at least a significant amount of time learning how to track can provide us with, such as the fact that tracking improves our awareness around what you're eating and your habits and behaviors around food. This is really important from like a mindfulness perspective because a lot of people they have like these mindless habits where they have you know uh taste licks you know bites licks and tastes and little things that they don't even realize unless they're tracking things and that's where they really say oh brandon you know i didn't even realize how many times i just took a scoop of peanut butter or i ate a a handful of nuts or i took a snack in the kitchen or i ate my kids chicken nuggets like the rest that were on the plate so Mm -hmm. you know it teaches us about the calories the macros and micros different foods provide it also allows us to discover what foods are higher or lower in calories and what macros they provide. And it helps us determine what foods are more or less conducive for your current goals, which is extremely helpful when trying to lose or maintain weight. And another aspect of of tracking that a lot of people don't hit on a lot of times, you know, there's this dichotomous relationship with tracking where a lot of people within like um, the intuitive eating space, essentially, or or people that are non-dieting, you know, uh, the Hayes movement and stuff. Sometimes they'll say, you know, tracking or dieting, it causes disordered eating. First of all, we don't see that in the literature. If you do not have a predisposition or an existing d- eating disorder, we do not see tracking increasing your likelihood of experiencing that. And there's clinical trials and, and, and very rigorous data that has looked at that. If you are someone that is dealing and currently has a clinically diagnosed eating disorder, then tracking could exacerbate that. Those are two different things. When we're talking about clinical pathologies and normal physiology, they're two separate entities and we really have to be able to differentiate and not pull data from one and then try to apply it to another. And this is something I'm really big on. You know, oftentimes I speak about about research, but if I'm talking about a female specific topic, I'm only looking at research that was done on females. I'm not taking it from male data and applying it to a female because they have a different physiology. So we really have to be intentional with the information that we provide, but we have to realize that often, you know, I actually find people develop a better relationship with food when they're able to track and become aware of what's in their food. And this is the reason why, Philip. The thing is, a lot of people had only what they've heard from pop culture, from the media. They look at foods as black and white. These are good foods and bad foods. They know nothing about nutrition, but they, they know about these demonized seed oils or they know about, you know, um, you know, artificial sweeteners or sugar or, or fruit, like you said, like fructose of the devil. And they feel that they cannot eat these food sources and they, they, you know, essentially exclude those from their diets. And they have these really, you know, highly, you know, for instance, we'll have, I'll have people that come to me all the time. They've never tracked a macro or a calorie in their life, but they're wheat, you know, they're gluten-free, they're Mm dairy-free, they're Mm fruit-free, they're uh, sugar-free, every free that you could think of, but they haven't been able to attain their goals. And they're living a extremely restricted lifestyle and they have a poor relationship with food. They have a very limited food list that they can work off of. When I get them to track and I show them what's in food, the benefits of different food sources. And it's not that you have to eat everything, but you have to know that you can eat pretty much anything unless it's the only thing you know i don't demonize any food on this earth except if it's trans fats because there's enough clinical data that shows cardiovascular disease risk just from a three percent uh intake of uh you know trans fat so that's the only thing that i'll demonize but besides that it's all par for the course for the most part anyway exactly and so when it comes down to tracking that's one thing that i really like 
having people do. And then from there, you know, other than having them track their diet, I like doing scale weight. And I know that's another controversial topic, but there's a very specific reason that I utilize. Not on here, Brandon, not on here. I'm you like scale weight? All right. So, listeners, so, listeners are all on board. Perfect. So, you know, you know, this is something that I have most clients track and take multiple times per week and even up to daily, as this is a great tool for A, determining a client's energy balance status. So whether they're in deficit, they're at maintenance, or they're in a surplus. And it's a great awareness tool of our habits and behaviors around nutrition and activity levels, which can help us determine if we're moving closer or further away from our phase-specific goals that we're working towards. And self-monitoring techniques like frequent waves have been shown in the vast majority of the literature to lead to better weight loss outcomes as well as greater success with weight loss maintenance. So it's a habit that increases that awareness. If you see your your weight ticking up and, and trajectory going up, it's something that can easily help you reel back in your habits or making certain adjustments to realize, hey, maybe I'm over consuming things, or maybe I've been a little bit too loose with my diet. Let me clean things up so I can get back to a, a weight stable or weight maintenance threshold. You know, what's comfortable for me where I feel good, I'm healthy, and it's within my my goals, you know, subsect essentially. Another and I think the frequent word is important that you said it's not just random every once, every few weeks or something. No, so actually the meta-analysis that we have on this, we have several of them. Uh, Wing has an incredible meta-analysis on this. This is, she's looking at daily weighing or at Mm -hmm. least multiple times per week. And here's the thing. So when they actually look at successful habits, weight loss dieters, um, we have, uh, you know, information from the National Weight Control Registry that shows us we have, um, you know, Wing is, is one of the researchers that has done an immense amount about successful weight loss and then weight loss maintenance. She's also the person that came to the industry with diet breaks. So she was the first person to ever, you know, um, introduced diet breaks to the industry in 2003 with her wing and Jeffrey study. So just a little, you know, food for thought or just like a little uh, fun fact about wing, but she's done incredible research. And what she has shown is there's this discrepancy or there's a relationship between weigh in frequency and weight loss outcomes and weight loss maintenance success. So what her research has shown, the meta-analysis she's done and the systematic reviews on the literature has found is that when people go during a fat loss diet and they weigh in more frequently, they're more successful with their weight loss. When they maintain those habits, they're more successful with weight loss maintenance. However, when someone decreases their frequency of self-monitoring habits, like self-weighing, like food tracking, um, uh, physical activity levels. So at that point in the literature, they weren't really utilizing step count, but it was like minutes per week. When they Mm -hmm. decrease any of those three aspects of self-monitoring techniques or tools, they see a regression, meaning that they're regaining more weight than those who have maintained and sustained the habits that got them there. So really what it comes down to in weight loss maintenance, a lot of people, you know, they see that the statistics of weight regain are so high, but it's really about maintaining a lot of the habits and making them and and putting them as a component of your new lifestyle. So it's not that you stay in an energy Mm -hmm. deficit. We increase your food intake. Absolutely. Right outside of the deficit, we're done with the fat loss phase. Let's get right back to maintenance. However, let's maintain a lot of the positive habits that led you to success. So that's things like monitoring your food intake, weighing your foods, tracking your food intake, doing nutritional habits. Even if it's stuff like, listen, you're not going to track every single meal. Let's make sure we get an adequate amount of protein with every single meal. Let's make sure that we have a sufficient amount of fiber per day. So when we really look at statistically, uh, Americans are eating between 11 to 18 grams of fiber per day, but we we actually look at the nutritional overseeing bodies. They're recommend 30 to 35 grams per day. So really we're getting one third to one half the amount of fiber we should per day. So vast majority of individuals are clinically or essentially deficient or insufficient in fiber intake. And actually fiber is one of the four nutrients of concern that the U.S. has put out in governing bodies and guidelines that this is something we have to pay attention to. So these are just little simple things, making sure that you hit a vegetable and a fruit minimum per day. All these little habits are things that we can track even just habits. And this is something that sometimes I have clients that are super busy or they're not a data type of individual. And I have a lot of, I work with a lot of professionals, uh, a lot of business professionals, a lot of IT guys, things like that. They love the data tracking. But then I have your busy household mother that doesn't like that. 
that. So I had them do a habit checklist where it's protein intake per day. We're eating three to four servings of a sufficient bolus of protein. We're making sure to get either a fruit or vegetable with each and every single meal. We're eating mostly whole foods. We're going on post-meal walks. You know, we're we're taking, you know, a certain minimum amount of supplements like vitamin D, things that they're deficient in. And so these are, we can really scale up the amount of things we track, but it doesn't have to be like all or nothing. It doesn't have to be like I track things or I don't track anything at all. It can be a spectrum. Essentially, this the shades of gray, another component that I'm going to track, and this is because I am such an advocate of the high energy flux lifestyle, is I track, um, you know, especially with clients whose goal is to lose body fat, I'm going to track you know, their daily step count as a mm-hmm. proxy for need and their overall physical activity levels. And this is because being in a deficit causes an unintentional and subconscious reduction in our need levels. And this is a natural part of the process as it's one of the many defense systems and mechanisms that our body has in place to reduce our energy expenditure exactly during a deficit it's trying to conserve energy so it's going to do that in any single way however the 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 insidious thing about need is that this reduction happens subconsciously so often you won't even notice that you're burning less calories per day throughout the process of dieting so reductions in need are generally proportional to the amount of energy deficit you put yourself in so the larger the calorie deficit you create uh, in your diet, the less you'll move as a result of putting less energy in the system. So we have to realize that energy intake and energy expenditure are intrinsically tied. So as energy intake goes down, so does your energy expenditure. So we have to offset that in some type of capacity. And so there are a couple of ways to combat this. First, I want people to track so that they're aware of, they're aware and conscious of their daily activity levels. But also I like to intentionally increase movement and activity, seeing as the amount of subconscious movement you're doing, such as you're fidgeting, you're standing, you're walking, you're blinking, is going to be reduced. So let's offset that by making sure that you're moving around a sufficient amount. And then the last kind of component that I track with all clients is their sleep and stress levels, both through objective and subjective ways based on the client that I'm working with. So sometimes I'll have them tracking, reporting their sleep quantity and sleep quality as measured through a device like Aura, which gives us more objective readings. But then sometimes I have someone that doesn't do well with data tracking. So we always have to, you know, fit the method. So I had many check-in sheets that it's really going towards, you know, it's not a one size fits all. Not everyone's getting the same check-in form for me. It's really based on the individual themselves. So sometimes I have an individual, they don't do well with data tracking. There's actually something in the clinical research or literature called orthosomnia, which is where people actually inhibit their sleep quality because they're so worried about getting insufficient sleep. So it's, it's almost like orthorexia or any of these, these issues, anything with ortho in, in front of it is they're becoming obsessive about sleep quality. So it actually inhibits these things. So tracking that with an individual like that, that's really worried about sleep quality would actually be a negative. It would do the opposite. So in that case, I'll simply have them report on a scale from one to 10, how well they believe they've been sleeping and how they feel in terms of energy levels and how rest and refreshed they feel when waking up. And I also really believe that we can't separate our psychology from our physiology. So I tend to ask a lot of lifestyle questions from clients and I try to build a very like open and honest line of communication between the two of us. I really think that coaching is, is a relationship. This is a friendship that we've we've uh, garnered together that we've built up. And, and it's really something that I like to get this open line of communication around, especially around their stress levels. As oftentimes just looking at some objective markers like their calorie intake or their scale weight or their training performance doesn't show us the full picture of what's really going on. So I really feel that one of my main roles as a coach is to be a detective and to dig in deeper, to peel back the layers of the onion, to find out some of the bottlenecks and some of the anchors in a client's life that go far beyond just what they're doing in the gym or in the kitchen that could be potentially causing a slowing in the rate of fat loss progress or a plateau in fat loss. So if I didn't have these conversations, maybe I would always think, and, and dude, I've been doing this 10 years, so I definitely don't have this, this, um, this mindset at this point. But often, if we only looked at the spreadsheets, if I only looked at scale weight, their calorie intake, uh, and things like their pictures and, and, and just objective markers, if I only looked at the data 
as it was without really considering the individual client that I was working with, maybe I would think, all right, they saw this week, it could be metabolic adaptation. It could be a lack of adherence. Let's just slash the calories even more. Let's bring down the macros. Like, you know, make these adjustments. It's just this, this exit and O's of calories and macros and, you know, training is just sets and reps. Instead, I really need to dig in deeper to the person. If they're dealing with stress issues, if we're seeing stress induced, you know, cortisol retent or cortisol induced water retention. If I'm seeing that they have really hectic lifestyle, maybe it's time that maybe physiologically they've only been dieting for three or four weeks. They don't need a diet break, but psychologically they do need it. So we mm-hmm. have to consider yeah. both sides of the, the equation and really realize we're working with humans. This isn't just data analysis. This isn't just data collection and just spitting things out like an algorithm, which is why I really think that things like AI coaching and chat GPT and all these different things, they're going to be revolutionary for a lot of industries. But really when it comes down to coaching, this goes far, like quality coaching goes far beyond the X's and O's of just nutrition in terms of calories and macros, and in terms of training with sets and reps. This is about digging in deeper, getting to know someone, really customizing your approach to that individual that you're working with, and really being a guide in their life and looking not only to help them make physique transformations, but lifestyle transformations. And that's something that no AI device, no app, no chat GPT is ever going to replace us for. That is so true, Brandon. It's like you could have uh, an entire huge encyclopedia of all of this data that you just talked about. We can have the exact answers for every possible scenario. And no matter what you do, the human body and the psyche are so complex. And knowing that person and having that relationship with them and the compassion and the understanding and listening, active listening, so important to say, you know what, over this, this other thing has been happening in your life. It's not reflected in the numbers, but it's mm-hmm. causing something downstream and, and and I get what it is. So let's understand it together. Man, this is so awesome because you just peel back every layer and people listening just have a ton to, to go with. So I'm going to probably be touching on multiple, multiple of these concepts in the future, uh, Brandon. Uh, I always learn something talking to you. Is there any last thing you want to say? Or, or if not, you can just let listeners know what you're up to now and where they can find you. Absolutely, my man. As always, I, I first and foremost want to say that I'm very appreciative to be on your show. I always appreciate the invite to share information and really provide a positive impact on this industry. When I got into this, man, uh, I started in the actual fitness industry 14 years ago, and I remember where I was at. And always my intention with everything that I've done since the beginning of my career, I've always led with integrity, led with a real drive and purpose and passion. But also my intention within everything that I do is that I'm going to leave this industry better than I found it. And when I find individuals like yourself that have that same like motivation, drive and passion, I really not only respect that. And I, I know that recently I'd reached out to you and just commended you on that. You're doing an incredible job with the podcast. You're building things. You're really putting out great information. I respect that first and foremost. And also I kind of mentioned to you off air that we're one of the good guys in the industry. We're one of the few. And, and this industry is getting saturated, but unfortunately, it's not saturated with great individuals. So if we're able to just align with ourselves in terms of a group where we're able to you know, share evidence-based information, but also experience anecdote, like real cl- like client-led coaching and what we've learned in the trenches, it's going to help this industry as a whole. So I have an immense amount of respect for you, for your show, and I'm appreciative to be on here. For anyone out in the audience, if you guys liked this podcast or you're interested in any other further information, please be sure to check out my own podcast, which is the Chasing Clarity Health and Fitness Podcast, available on Spotify, iTunes, or even YouTube. Then also find me on Instagram. I post daily content. Literally, I'm someone, I'm Mr. Consistency, so I've not missed an educational post one day since 2017. So you will find, you know, an immense amount of posts and, and always like things like this will be on there. I'm constantly sharing podcasts that I'm on, you know, whether it be a guest or even things that I do on my own. And so that is going to be on Instagram at Brandon DeCruz underscore. And if anyone you know has any inquiries, questions, or any you know things that they want to follow up with, feel free to reach out to me on my private email, which is bdecruzfitness at gmail.com. 
man. You're, and your podcast, Chasing Clarity, for anybody listening, definitely follow it and listen all the way through because there's going to be something you learn every time, <laughs> every time. So definitely check it out. Uh, put the IG, I'll put the email in there. I really appreciate the words uh, about me that you just said, Brandon. That that means a lot. I appreciate it. And uh, look up to you and all the guys in the industry like that. I agree. We we all want to align. Good guys mm-hmm. unite and, and women and help each other out. So thank you so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure. Absolutely, man. We'll be happy to be back whenever you want to happen. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Wits and Weights. If you found value in today's episode and know someone else who's looking to level up their wits or weights, please take a moment to share this episode with them. And make sure to hit the follow button in your podcast platform right now to catch the next episode. Until then, stay strong. Hey, before you go, I want to let you know about a free resource I have. They are free guides on everything from fat loss to eating out to building muscle to managing hunger to figuring out the best macros for you and more being added all the time. You want to get the most out of these podcasts and your time to look and feel your best. And these free guides will give you a quick and easy way to know what to do. If you want to get your hands on these completely free guides, you can head over to witsandweights.com slash free. That's witsandweights.com slash free to get your free guides and level up your results today.